Good morning, Parkview. It's great to see you all here this morning. We sang about grace this morning, how amazing the grace of God is. And we, we sang praises to the Lord our God. Uh, I was thinking about something, but I forgot what it was. Anybody else have that problem as you get older? Okay, I see, all, I see all those hands out there. Let me see if I can see my notes here. It was something good. Okay. Yeah, okay. Well, just the idea that God is so amazingly gracious. He's also a miracle-working God. We sang about that this morning. So I'm Len, one of your elders, and I have the privilege and joy and burden to bring God's truth to us this morning. I was so excited to come up here. I came up before the last, the song just before this almost. I was ready to go. But as we think about grace, it's God's grace that saved me from my sins something like 55 or 60 years ago. It's God's grace that after all those years, I still want to follow. When I see older folks here, that grace is true in your life. The Spirit has been working. It's God's grace that I get to stand before you and talk about his word. And it's God's grace that transformation will happen by the power of his spirit. But it's not just older folks here, not just me who are experiencing that grace and the work of the spirit. It's all of us. I read something this week about, you know, how do we know the spirit's working in our life? And, and this, the fellow wrote, it was Tim Chester, he said, it was just little things like, you know the Spirit's working in your life if on a cold day you come to church. And here you all are, and here I am. The Spirit's working in our lives. Um, let me pray again for us. My Father, thank you for revealing your truth to us through the Bible. We want your truth producing transformed lives that reflect your Son by the power of your Spirit and for the good of our community and especially for your glory. Amen. One of my favorite movies is the musical Fiddler on the Roof. Anybody else like that movie? All right. Mostly older folks. <laughs> If you're young, you've got to watch that movie, okay? Fiddler on the Roof. It takes place in the early 1900s in, in Western Tsarist Russia. Tevya, the main character, is a very traditional Jewish father of three increasingly less traditional Jewish daughters. The introduction to the Fiddler on the Roof is a great illustration of having great zeal for God but not according to the word of God. For Tevye, the word of God was buried under a large pile of traditions and teachings. Let's take a look at that introduction. How do we keep our balance? That I can tell you in one word. Tradition!
our traditions. We've kept our balance for many, many years. Here in Anatevka, we have traditions for everything. How to sleep, how to eat, how to work, how to wear clothes. For instance, we always keep our heads covered and always wear a little prayer shawl. This shows our constant devotion to God. You may ask, how did this tradition get started? I'll tell you. I don't know. But it's a tradition. And because of our traditions, every one of us knows who he is and what God expects him to do. So tradition is both good and bad. Uh, just for the sake of my introduction again, it's, it's for Tevya, he had great zeal for God, but because of all the traditions piling up, it wasn't according to the Word of God. And that same thing can happen to us as believers. The true meaning of Scripture can be buried under tradition, under our pre-understanding that we've grown up with. All the understandings we bring to a text can affect how we read a text and maybe cause us to miss the real meaning of the text. But this is not what we want, is it? We want as individuals in a church family to experience what Luke described as a theme of this section of the book of Acts. And that theme is, the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. That's what we want for us and for our church, that the Lord's word would prevail, would increase and prevail mightily in our lives. A month ago, Wade showed us the amazing grace of the gospel who was, which was settled at the, at the Jerusalem uh, Council. In Doug's sermon a few weeks ago, beginning Paul's second missionary journey, we learned that while the gospel is free, doing gospel ministry requires work because relationships are messy, aren't they? In Doug's following message about Paul's gospel word coming to Philippi, we learned that the gospel sets free, even in the midst, in the midst of mess, the power of Jesus and his gospel word can bring freedom and unity to all kinds of people. And today, in Acts 17, we learn how, how the word of the Lord prevailed among the Jews of Thessalonica and Berea. They had to deal with a, a new and big issue. Was Jesus the Messiah? That's not a small thing. How did they handle that while letting the word of God be the word of God? their final authority. Some made, made, were able to do that, others were not. So the issue for us today is, how do we let the Word of God be the Word of God? So the Word of God increases 
and, might, and prevails mightily in our lives. Like the Thessalonians, what biases or blocks might hinder us from seeing the real meaning of God's word? How do we handle new ideas, whether from culture, church, or the Bible? Does our tradition cause us to have closed minds and be defensive or even attack, like the Thessalonians? Or are we like the Bereans, more open-minded to hear and then to study and discuss the Bible's meaning together? So the big idea of my sermon is this. Let the Word of God in the Bible be the Word of God in your life. So my plan is to tell the story and then draw some applications. And I'm dividing the story into three sections. First is Paul proclaimed the gospel word. That's verses 1 to 3. And then the Thessalonian Jews rejected Paul's gospel word. That's verses 4 through 9. And then the Berean Jews accepted Paul's gospel word, verses 10 through 15. So the Thessalonian Jews in large part rejected it. The Bereans, in large part, accepted it. So turn to Acts 17 if you haven't turned there yet. So in verses 1 through 3, we see Paul proclaiming the word of God. And I'll just read it here briefly, real quick. And then when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, and, and where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom. And on three days, on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the Scriptures explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Messiah to suffer and to rise from the dead and saying, this Jesus, this Yeshua, whom I proclaim to you, is the Messiah. So Paul proclaimed the new gospel word on the authority of God's written word. Paul had a strategy for his mission trips. He established churches, in strategic cities, starting at the Jewish synagogue. He established churches. Paul, Paul didn't, his focus wasn't individual discipleship. He wanted to establish a growing church, a strong church, that would evangelize and establish churches as an area. And how did he do that? He went to strategic cities, not every city, but to strategic cities. And Thessalonica being the capital of Macedonia, and perhaps almost 200,000 people living there, that was a strategic city in those days. But he started with the synagogue of the Jews. Why? Why did he start there? Well, let me speculate on three reasons. Paul had an emotional reason, his heart. He loved his brothers, his kinsmen. Secondly, he had a theological reason. That is the Jews' special role as God's chosen people. And his third reason was more practical. Actually, he had some practical reasons, I should say, because there's a couple here. His Jewish kinsmen had a great spiritual and theological and scriptural foundation, which would enable them to quickly become leaders in the church. And also, in that synagogue, there were a lot of devout Greeks these were non-Jews who, who loved the God of Israel, came every Sabbath to hear the Torah, believe some of the commands, and, and uh, they also had a, a good scriptural and theological background that would enable them to quickly become leaders in the church. 
And also, these Greeks were often wealthy and influential, which also would make them key resources for the new church. So what was Paul's message to the synagogue congregation? Paul proclaimed the gospel word on the basis of the Old Testament word. At three Sabbath synagogue meetings, Paul discussed the Messiah with his brothers. They had much in common. They believed in Paul's God, in Paul's Bible, in the Messiah. But their traditional understanding of that Messiah prevented them from accepting Jesus as their Messiah. They couldn't get their minds wrapped around the Messiah dying. And they, that was a big fish for them to swallow. So Paul approached them on the basis of their need. What did the law, the prophets, and the writings really say about the identity of the Messiah? Four key words in verses 2 and 3 describe Paul's approach to the synagogue meetings. He reasoned, he explained, he proved, and he proclaimed. Altogether, that's a very thorough presentation, isn't it? So he explained and proved three points. He must have gone to seminary. Okay. Uh, the three points were tailored exactly for what they needed. Namely, the Messiah had to suffer. The Messiah had to rise from the dead. And consequently, Jesus was that Messiah. And he claimed it very emphatically. Luke in the Greek puts it this way. This one is the Messiah, this Jesus, whom I proclaim to you. This one is the Messiah, this Jesus, whom I proclaim to you. So how did Paul seek to convince them that the Messiah had to die and rise from the dead? He opened their, their scriptures, our Old Testament. He went to those passages that foretold the Messiah's coming or suffering, like Isaiah 53, Psalm 22. And he went to the passages that foretold the Messiah's resurrection, like Psalm 16, and again, Isaiah 53. What he proclaimed Jesus, that the Messiah had to die and rise from the dead. That's the core of our gospel, isn't it? That's what, Luke, that's what Paul wrote about in, in, in 1 Corinthians 15, that Jesus died for our sins and rose from the dead. Now, if, if you're here this morning and you've not placed your faith in Jesus as the, as the one who did that for you, we are glad that you are here. Here's the truth that you need to know and believe for your sins to be forgiven and to be restored to right relationship with, with God. Jesus died for your sins and he rose from the dead. If you have questions about that, ask us. We'd love to talk to you about that. But there's a truth in here that's actually also very comforting for hurting people. I read this from Larry Crabb, really, one of my favorite Christian counselors. I never thought this connection between the atonement and our hurting souls. He wrote something like this. Christ's atonement guarantees the Spirit's unstoppable work in our lives from conception through death and on into eternity. 
In that we find hope for a soul in need of care. The atonement we have in Christ guarantees that the Spirit was working in our life from conception all the way to death and on into eternity. And that can bring healing to a hurting soul. So Paul presented his gospel word on the authority of the Old Testament word. But how did the Thessalonians respond? Well, in verses 4 through 9, we find that, first of all, well, we find that the Thessalonian Jews generally rejected Paul's new gospel word. Evidently, on some authority, on some other authority than the authority of the Old Testament scriptures. So the gospel was successful. Some believed. We read that in verse 4. Let me read it here. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason. So the gospel was successful. Some believed. But note, only some of the Jews believed. Luke's making a, a comparison between the response of the Jews in Thessalonica to the response of the Jews in Berea. In Thessalonica, only some, verse 4, the Jews believed. But if you look down on verse 4 and verse 12 in Berea, it's many of those believed. But while some of the Jews believed, many of the wealthy, influential, God-fearing Greeks and leading women believed. But for some of the other Jews, the response was, put a pun in here, was lukewarm. Okay. It wasn't lukewarm. It was lukewarm in responding to maybe Paul's gospel, but it was hot in how they responded in violence. Because of the gospel success, because some of the Jews were leaving and a whole bunch of the influential and wealthy Greeks were leaving, some of the Jews were jealous and they reacted violently. They gathered some troublemakers and created a riot to get the attention of the city officials and consequently Paul had to leave Thessalonica. Why did the Jews at Thessalonica respond uh, not so well to the gospel word. Again, Luke made an obvious comparison between the Berean Jews, who were more open-minded, more noble, and then the Thessalonian Jews, who evidently were not so open-minded. So let's review. The new gospel word, Paul proclaimed the new gospel word on the authority of God's written word. And the Thessalonian Jews generally rejected Paul's gospel word because of they, they were not like the Bereans. So what were the Bereans like? How did they respond differently to God's message? Well, the Bereans, in verses 10 through 15, accepted Paul's new gospel message on the authority of God's written word. Let me read a little bit of that. Starting in verse 10. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea, and when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see 
if these things were so. And many of them, therefore, believed. So the result, well, well, let me me go back a second here. So Paul's now in Berea, about 50 miles southwest of Thessalonica. Berea was the seat of the provincial assembly, so it was a significant city also. But, but Paul, and Paul probably used the same, same technique in, in Berea that he used in, in Thessalonica. Preached the same message to the Jews. But, let's see, but the Berean response was very different from the Thessalonian response. They welcomed God's or welcome Paul's gospel word based on their study of the Old Testament word. So the result was, again, many Jews believed compared to just some of the Jews in Thessalonica. And then many of the devout Gentiles, including leading women, believed. So the Jews in in Berea responded very differently. Why? They had a different attitude. Luke writes that the Bereans were more noble They were more open-minded, tolerant, generous. Other Bible versions translated as noble-minded, open-minded, fair-minded, receptive. How were they open-minded? They received the word, Paul's message, with all eagerness. They eagerly welcomed Paul's message. They didn't automatically throw out Paul's new gospel message about Jesus being the, the Messiah. They were willing to think about it and consider it. So they searched the scriptures daily. Is Jesus our Messiah? Again, it's no small matter. And so they met with Paul in the synagogue to go over the Old Testament scrolls daily. They searched the scriptures and discussed the meaning in community. And they sought the truth of Paul's new message according to the authority of God's word. Isn't that a great model for us? How should we handle the word of God so that it is the word of God in our lives? How should we respond to new or different ideas about God's truth? Be like the Bereans. But in The Fiddler on the Roof, Tevye said, as the good book says, if you spit in the air, it lands in your face. So after the word of the Lord increased and prevailed mightily at Berea, the spit fell. And the unbelieving Jews from Thessalonica, not the Berean Jews, but the unbelieving Thessalonican Jews came and created a ruckus. So Paul and the gang had to split. And Paul went on the Athens alone. But again, in spite of the hostility, there was great success. The word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. And that's the narrative. So what did the Lord want to communicate to the network of churches that Did I say the Lord there? I think I said Lord there. What did Luke want to communicate to the network of churches? And it would be the Lord too, I guess, too, that he was writing to. They probably had Paul's letters. They probably had the Thessalonian letters. They probably knew the details of these stories that Luke did not include for us today. Here are two two probable lessons Luke may have wanted to convey. First, while messy... The extension of the church in the Gentile territory continued successfully with Jews still responding to their Messiah, Jesus. The word of the Lord was increasing and prevailing mightily. Therefore, keep up the the mission. 
God and his work are still going on. That's true for us today. Another lesson might be, how do we handle the word of God? It's crucial how we handle it. We need to be like the Bereans. Let the word of God be the word of God in our lives. Let me camp on that for a few minutes. Again, the point is, let the word of God be the word of God. Be like the Bereans so that the word of God can multiply and magnify in our lives. Tevye had a very fuzzy thinking about the word of God. And as a result, the word of God was not really the word of God in his life. So again, it comes back to us, how should we handle the word of God so that his word truly increases and prevails in our lives, in our church? And we need to be like the Bereans in the way we handle the word of God. So here's some tips. So on Sunday mornings, listen to the sermon with an open Bible or an open telephone, I guess, but with also a pen and notebook. And then discuss it with your friends. And then during the week when you're home, again, study the Bible regularly and methodically. We need an intentional method to accurately bridge the gaps between the author's time and our time, the gaps in language and history and culture and literature. So come up, find a good method for helping you bridge those gaps. There's a Bible study method called coma. Not that you're in a coma when you study it, but it's just the initials, C-O-O-M-A, Context, Observation, Meaning, and Application. You can find it online. Just Google coma, and you'll find it. But there's also lots of good resources online. I'm a, book, I'm a man of the books, of books, so I don't use online resources very much, but there's a lot of them online. There's simple ones like Bible Gateway or Net, Net Bible. Those are two great ones. But here's, so here's another tip. Never read a verse in the Bible. What? Never read a verse in the Bible. Read at least a paragraph, okay? Because if you just read a verse, a verse can mean anything. Because you're out, it's out of context. So read it in its context, okay? So we need to study the scriptures regularly. Another point is this. Don't drop your watch, okay? So now I have all the time in the world, so, okay, I've got about five minutes, okay? Okay, help me, so start waving your hands when five minutes are up, okay? So, anyway, here's one. Do we treat the Bible as our ultimate authority? Do we treat the Bible as our ultimate authority? The EFCA, Evangelical Free Church Association Statement of Faith, summarizes the point of keeping the Bible authority this way. We believe that the God has spoken to the scriptures, both Old and New Testament, through the words of human authors. As the verbally inspired word of God, the Bible is without error in the original writings. The complete revelation of his will for salvation and the ultimate authority by which every realm of human knowledge and endeavor should be judged. Therefore, here it is, there's the 
flame and eggs. It is to be believed in all that it teaches, obeyed in all that it requires, and trusted in all that it promises. Are you there? Is that how you handle God's word? Well, I've got about five more pages of notes. And I've lost my watch, so I, I can go on, okay? <laughs> but I can't, so... so. There's a couple of things I want to do. Okay, finally, again, if, if you're here this morning, if you've not believed in Jesus, if your traditions, if your worldview inform you that Jesus did not die for your sins and that he could not have risen from the dead, if that's what your worldview and your traditions are telling you, we encourage you to be like the Bereans and to set aside your traditions, your worldview, your pre-understandings, and search the Bible like it's a history book presenting a view of reality. Because that's what it is. We'd love to talk to you about that on your search. Feel free to ask us questions. Let me close this way. I, a thousand years before the Bereans, Solomon wrote a poem that pictures beautifully what it means to be like the Bereans. Amazing. It's also a beautiful picture of a, of a father discipling his son or a parent discipling their child or God discipling us. So listen to Solomon in Proverbs chapter 2, verses 1 through 6. Solomon shows us how to let the word of God be the word of God. I'm going to read it once, and then I'm going to read it again, and then the second time I'm going to ask you to close your eyes and just listen, okay? So here's what he says. My son, if you receive my words and treasure my commands with you, making your ear attentive to wisdom and inclining your hearts to understanding, yes, if you call out for insight and raise your voice for understanding, if you seek it like silver and search for it as for hidden treasure, then you will understand the fear of the Lord. And the Lord will, will the Lord, excuse me, let me, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. For the Lord gives wisdom, and from his mouth comes knowledge and understanding. Now close your eyes and pretend that God is talking to you. And he says, my child, if you receive my words and treasure up my commands with you, making your ear attentive to wisdom and inclining your heart to understanding, that's eager, open reception of his word. Yes, if you call out for insight and raise your voice for understanding, that's prayer about his word. If you seek it like silver and search for it as for hidden treasure, that's diligent study of his word. Then you will find and you will understand the fear of me and find knowledge of me. For I give wisdom and from my mouth comes knowledge and understanding. That's the word of God increasing and prevailing mightily 
in your life. The Word of God is truly becoming the Word of God in your life. And we all are being transformed into the image of his Son. Let's pray. Oh, Father, make us like the Bereans. Increase our desire and commitment to welcome your truth, no matter the implications. Help us develop the ability to see in the Bible what is really there and not our own ideas. Increase in us the perception of the treasure that is your truth in the Bible and the wonder, importance, and the reality of those truths. Enable us to study your Bible in community that leads to growth and unity based on the authority of your truth rather than our own preferences, no matter what the issue. And may the result be the flourishing of our church family, the blessing of our community and your glory. May your word increase and prevail mightily in our church family. 